Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, June the 22nd, 2021. It's uh, lunchtime or almost lunchtime in San Francisco. A few days ago, um, the New York Times, my reference, although I suppose we should believe everything they say. Not everybody does, of course, particularly the people at QAnon. They probably feel that uh, the New York Times is run by pedophiles or some other weirdos. But anyway, they ran a piece about QAnon, um, the what they call the viral pro-Trump conspiracy theory. Um, it was written by Kevin Ruse, who's a very good uh, tech reporter. He's been on the show before. Here we have an image of Truth for Trump, Make America Great Again, both Q symbols, the big Q up there. I don't know exactly what it's supposed to symbolize, but it resonates both on the left and the right. I'm just quoting um, uh, Ruse in the Times from this piece. He, he writes, QAnon was once a fringe phenomenon, the kind most people could safely ignore. But recently, it's gone mainstream. Um, in 2020, QAnon supporters flooded social media with false information about COVID-19, Black Lives Matter protests, and the presidential election. And apparently, a December poll from last year found that 17% of Americans believe that the core falsehood of QAnon, that a, a group of Satan-worshipping elites who run a child sex ring are trying to control our politics and media, are true. It's pretty interesting. Uh, apparently, according to the Times, QAnon has made major inroads into Republican politics, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who, um, who has become one of the best-known Republicans for reasons which not everyone, I think, respects. Ruse concludes, uh, QAnon is an incredibly convoluted theory, and you could fill an entire book explaining its various tributaries and sub-theories. And that exactly, I'm pleased to announce, is what my guests on the show have done. They've written a book about uh, QAnon called Pastels and Pedophiles, and I have both uh, Mia Bloom and Sofia Moskalenko on the show to talk about it. Um, let me bring them both in. Uh, Sophia and uh, Sophia uh, and uh, and Mia, welcome. Um, who wants to start in terms of explaining why you chose to write a book about QAnon? I'll start. And and first of all, let me just also say I'm a fan of your Cult of the Amateur book. So that was one of the starting points. Um, oh, excellent. Well, because. Part of the problem was, and I think you've encapsulated this in the past, where everyone has their own truth. And so trying to explain to QAnon what the truth is, when for them, their truth is the truth. It's truthiness. It's not truth. It's absolutely surreal that we thought we would write a book and we would explain where it comes from. And the thing that bothered us was you would hear, for example, in the news, that there are anti-Semitic tropes and no one would tell you what the tropes were. Or you didn't realize how much of QAnon 
has been conspiracy theory that has existed for, you know, in some instances with the anti-Semitism for a very long time, uh, hundreds of years, but also how much of uh, QAnon mythology was plagiarized, either from literature or from films. So we thought it was important for regular people to know what QAnon was, but then also since Sophia is the world's leading expert on radicalization, how do you get people out? Uh, sorry, yeah, you, you are, um, I, I, I got you confused at first there. You are Mia Bloom, and um, the co-author uh, is um, Sophia uh, Moskalenko. Sophia, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you chose to write the book about QAnon. So I'm a psychologist, and uh, for most of my career, I have studied how and why people turn to radical ideas and radical actions, including terrorism. And so I came to QAnon as this latest manifestation of radical ideas that we are now all experiencing firsthand, as opposed to my usual subjects being somewhere far away overseas, you know, these strange people we know nothing about. Now QAnon is our friends and neighbors oftentimes, and all of a sudden my area of expertise was expanding and becoming relevant to American daily life. And so I started out thinking about QAnon as this radical social movement, but my opinion of it has really changed through the research that I've done. Um, because yes, although a lot of these people endorse ideas that sound crazy, and even um, condone violence toward this cabal that is supposed to, uh, supposed to be running our government and the media, um, I believe, based on the research that I've done for the book, that um, QAnon is not like a terrorist group as much as it is a manifestation of a massive, large-scale mental health crisis that we're experiencing right now. Say a little bit more about that. You mean everyone who follows QAnon is mad? Disturbed? No, no nothing like everybody. And I would never say mad. Um, but so from case studies that I've analyzed for the book, um, I was struck by how often serious psychopathology was present in this person's um, you know, life story. Um, we're talking about bipolar disorder, PTSD, depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia. And um, after the January 6th attempt uh, to storm the Capitol Hill, um, we got access to court records of those QAnon followers that were present at the attempted insurrection. And among them, for example, the rate of diagnosed psychopathology was 68%, which is staggering compared to the about 20% rate of psychopathology diagnosed in the American population in general. And granted that during the COVID lockdown, mental health suffered for most of us. We have data that show that self-reported depression and anxiety quadrupled in Americans, going from about 10% to about 40% during COVID lockdowns. Um, so a lot of people were experiencing psychological problems that had to do with it. And a lot of them turned to the internet in search for answers to the fears that they were experiencing to the uncertainties about the virus and the election and all these things that were changing around them and being so vulnerable they became kind of easy target for QAnon disinformation and for malicious players who 
monetize this disinformation and use it for their own political gain. Mia, you're nodding, but you mentioned earlier, um, uh, you mentioned earlier my 2007 book, Cult of the Amateur, which talked about a lot of this stuff. I mean, this was pre-COVID, post 9-11, pre-economic meltdown. You can always find some reason for people to be anxious. We may live in an age of anxiety, but we always seem to live in an age of anxiety. And people are always suggesting we live in ages of mental health crisis. Do you share uh, Sophia's uh, belief that somehow the popularity, the relative popularity of QAnon, let's say 15% of Americans believe that there's some truth in it, um, does it reflect a mental health crisis in this country? Well, two questions. Let me get the first one first. As far as the work that you've done, a lot of uh, Sophia's research looks at things like uh, fragmentation of society or the individualization of culture. And so because she was looking at mass movements, there is a bit of overlap. And I think what is unique about QAnon, because there have been conspiracy theories you know, for ages, especially, let's say, since the 60s, we've seen a lot of conspiracy theories on the left and the right. What was different about this was that it was mass mediated, that the internet allowed it to spread faster than the virus. And so what we did with the book was, you know, we split it in, in some ways where I'm telling a story about how it became so popular that it started on these chants very even possibly as, you know, a LARP, a live action role play game. But that because it went from the chans and then, well, a chan became a coon and then Reddit and then Facebook and Instagram, because of its movement through these platforms, it gained traction and credibility, even though it was completely not a credible uh, theory. And because what happens is you have relatively flat from 2017 until 2020, it's relatively flat in its popularity. And then with the pandemic, we see a massive uptick. The Wall Street Journal says 600% increase in the number of posts about QAnon. And once it went on to Instagram- But why, why the pandemic? I mean, is it because people stay at home the whole time? Part of it was that, absolutely. Part of it was um, the people felt very discombobulated by a pandemic that you could not see or touch or a virus. And so they turned to the internet for explanations. And of course, you know, the internet has a lot of very bad explanations as well. But also for whatever reason, and I taught a course on conspiracy theory as we were writing the book, for some reason, people find solace in a conspiracy theory that, you know, things just don't happen randomly, that bad things don't happen to good people. You don't just get hit crossing the street by a bus. The bus driver was trying to kill you. And so this idea that there was some evil plan and that there were puppeteers that were, you know, pulling the strings for whatever reason made people feel better than the fact that there was a pandemic we couldn't explain. Um, what about, um, uh, Sophia, what about this idea that um, QAnon is no really different from religion? Sure, the ideas are kind of absurd, but the ideas of Christianity are absurd. Sons of God, uh, Muslims, Jews, they all come up with absurd stories. Why, why is QAnon in any, different in any way from conventional religion? I mean, one day it might not be. And there have been already 
you know, these comparisons have been drawn by people who are better equipped than I to speculate on what makes a religion. Um, I think for right now, the way QAnon is, and it's changing very quickly, um, right now they're still looking for proof um, for their, you know, conspiracy theories. They're, they're still looking for clues. They're trying to figure it out. So there is an element of verification. It's not just blind faith. In fact, what unites QAnon supporters very often is that um, they they look for clues together. It's like a quest. It's a search, right? Um, so that's one thing that makes it um, not quite a religion yet. Um, if one day they become organized and they canonize, you know, Donald Trump as their savior, and you know, like um, some figures from the cabal will become mythologized, then I think it can happen. And with the rate of change that QAnon has undergone over the past few years... Well, I buy that. But then uh, everyone in this country at least seems to respect religion. If you say something bad about Christians, you get stoned. So what's the difference between QAnon and, and Christianity? I mean, the early Christians were fanatics. They believed all sorts of strange uh, conspiracy theories about the world. The whole foundations of all organized monotheisms are, are based on some sort of conspiracy theory. I, I'm not convinced that it's in any way different, and it tends to attract Christians anyway, who are already schooled in one kind of conspiracy theory or another. I mean, I'm not a theologist, so I'm not a good person to, to argue for or against. I don't even have like a strong position in that matter. Um, they're not yet monotheistic, as you're saying. They don't have a god they, you know, they pray to. They have this you know, idea of, of Donald Trump as being the person who will eventually take the cabal down. Um, and I mean, maybe they are a religion. I just, I just don't know. Mia, uh, what's your position on the difference between, um, QAnon and traditional, uh, monotheistic faiths? It's, it clearly attracts a, a religious crowd. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not only an, an outspoken QAnon person, but also, uh, an aggressive a Christian evangelist. What's the difference? Uh, isn't it part of the same back bucket? I think the blind, the blind belief might be, and this idea of feeling you have to proselytize. One of the things that we found. Was well, that's early religion. All all early religions are, are proselytizers, and that's how they build their faith and their organizations. But here's the difference: there is no structure. There's no hierarchy, there's no priesthood, there's no way of identifying, for example, when you now go to QAnon individuals, uh, basically they'll say, we don't care who Q is, because there were two different documentaries, Vice News and HBO, that spent a lot of time trying to figure out who was the original Q. And I think what ends up happening is that people don't care who Q is anymore now, it's a movement. Now, is it a religion? Not really, because people can be, you know, uh, Christian NQ and Buddhist NQ and maybe even Muslim NQ, Jewish NQ. But it has tended to appeal to evangelicals more than any other group, in part because this idea of, you know, good and evil or the idea that there is only one truth and it's their truth and everyone else is fooling you. Or it really does describe the way people came upon QAnon is very often the way evangelicals talk about how they discovered Jesus and put Jesus in their lives. And so my concern, and we, we put this in the book, was that 
as evangelicals at 39%, they believe in QAnon. And they're proselytizing in Papua New Guinea or in Gabon or Cameroon. They're taking those QAnon beliefs with them. So I think in order for it to be a religion, it'll have to attach to an existing one. Well, it probably has done. Um, Sophia, um, uh, Mia mentioned the protocols of the elders of Zion. She mentioned anti-Semitism in your book. You talk about the protocols of the elders of Zion. A lot of the QAnon stuff is anti-Hollywood, which is a sort of thinly veiled anti-Semitism. What, what, what is the role, in your view, um, of and traditional European anti or American, North American anti-Semitism in QAnon? I think it's, it's one of their central tenets. Um, the members of the cabal that QAnon believes is running the American government and the world government are mostly um, Jews. Some of them have been targeted as Jews by anti-Semitic campaigns of the past, like George Soros. Um, and, um, you know, this idea of the cabal itself, it comes from the uh, Protocols of Zion. Um, for whatever reason, you know, Jews are handy targets for conspiracy theories, and they have been for centuries, as, as Mia mentioned. And, um, you know, the idea of stealing children and torturing them and drinking their blood, that comes from the, um, the blood libel that was levied against Jews in the 18th century. Um, the idea that the Jews used to steal Christian children and drink their blood. So there are a lot of parallels to centuries old conspiracy theories that feature evil Jews that do horrible, immoral things. There's probably, you know, an archetype that these stories land upon and, and make it very easy to believe them. Um, Mia actually is a better person to talk about this because she knows quite a lot about that history. Mia, do you want to chime in? If I may. Yeah, let, let, let me. Um, yeah, so, so Mia, you did mention anti-Semitism and the protocols of the elders of Zion, and that's all very well, but lots of movements are against the Jews. And you both mentioned the fact that Trump, he may not be Q, but he's certainly a popular symbolic figure. And his daughter and son-in-law are both religious Jews. So I, I don't, again, it's, you can be against the Jews. Most people are against the Jews, but it doesn't really mean very much, does it? They don't talk about Ivanka very much. And here's the part that I was going to tell you that I think Mr. Keen is really, for me, was like blowing the mind. There, because I follow the QAnon conversations. It's a methodology that I developed when I was working on ISIS. And so I am inside their encrypted chat rooms where they're having conversations and I see what they talk about, how they talk about it. There are multiple Hebrew QAnon channels. And for me, this was the most absurd thing ever that I'm reading about this Q and it's still anti-Semitic, but it's in Hebrew. And of course they're talking about Hollywood they tone down some of the anti-Semitism, but they bring it right back when they talk about that there's a cabal. They bring a little bit of a local flavor. And what I put in the book, and, and when we talked about it in the media, in many ways, what makes QAnon unique is its ability to pick up adjacent and, and other conspiracy theories along the way. And so it's not just Q, it's anti-5G, it's pizza. Yeah, but, but isn't there, I, I buy that, but isn't... I mean, doesn't this speak to the fact it's just absurd? 
uh, they can pick up anything they want. But if you've got Hebrew chat rooms for QAnon, some of them are anti-vaxxers, some of them are against this or that. They reflect some element of mental disease in, in the community. Why should we take this seriously when um, an underclass or a digital underclass of people who clearly believe in the most in- insane things are chatting each other up uh, on, on the dark web? So what? Well, so again... I think initially many people didn't take it seriously, and that was part of. The- Are you taking it seriously now? Because um, uh, I, I just uh, uh, Virginia Heffernan, uh, who's been on this show before, uh, suggests that um, QAnon is in deep decline. Whereas uh, you know there are FBI warnings now that the QAnon's digital soldiers may become more violent. So we're getting different messages from different people here. And I'm going to add one more message just to make it more confusing. Uh, Sophia and I track that QAnon is now in 85 different countries. So it's not just a phenomenon in North America. Why would I... Why yeah, but yeah, I saw that bit in the book. So you've got a few people on a few message boards. That doesn't really mean it's in 85 countries, does it? No, but when I'm seeing QAnon in Hebrew telling Netanyahu not to leave the residence, Five days before he announces he's not leaving the residence, I think that QAnon is having more influence than we realize. It's having influence in Australia and in the UK and in other places. For example, uh, apparently there was a discussion about whether or not you were going to talk about child trafficking or you were going to say it was a satanic child trafficking. And the insertion of satanic was a, a hat tip towards QAnon. The reason it's important is that in in the summer of 2020, when we were doing the research for the book, there were 97 different primary candidates that believed in QAnon. 24 went on to the November elections, of which we had two win, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. We already have 18, and there isn't even a primary yet. So we are going to be seeing more and more American political candidates that genuinely believe in QAnon. And so this is why we do have to take it seriously. In addition to the FBI warnings, when it tried to almost blow up the the Hoover Dam. So I think that we can't just ignore something that's an emerging threat that so many people believe. And one of the things Sophie and I wanted to do was show you, how do you get people out? Because if you just give someone the truth, they're going to ignore it. They're going to, you know, um, confirmation bias, they're gonna double or triple down. But we were giving people some skill sets to be able to gently tug at the thread. Uh, Mia, um, Sophia, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not conf- com- convinced by this. I mean, your book's interesting, but I don't believe that QAnon is a serious threat. Um, how, how connected do you see, and I, and I know you write about this in the book, how, um, how connected was QAnon with the January 6th, some people call it an insurrection, riot, whatever you want to call it? Well, the investigations are still ongoing. The jury is literally still out. So I can't really give you an answer to that for a very good reason. Um, and and let, me, let me just put something out there and you don't have to agree with it, but um, taking QAnon seriously or not um, can mean many different things. I don't suggest um, that we consider seriously, you know, that there are lizard people living among us or that, you know, there is a cabal that, you know, skins children and wears their faces as mask Hannibal Lecter style. But I do think as a psychologist who spent her career studying 
radical movement and drastic changes in society, that 35 million Americans, which is 17% of a representative sample who say they believe in QAnon, that projects to about 35 million people in the United States who are distrustful of the government, really critical of the institutions, don't believe in science as the arbiter of truth, don't believe in the organized religion as the arbiter of moral right and wrong, that they are a huge contingent. And that number in itself is concerning, considering that there are people out there, and we don't even know who Q is, but somebody out there can really manipulate these people into doing things a certain way. We know they don't like how things are done right now in our society. We know that they are against the government as it is. We know that they're against our norms as we know them. Well, you sound, Sophia, you sound paranoid. I mean, you're suggesting they're like ISIS. This reminds me of the general paranoia. I think Hofstetter wrote about this in, in American history. It's, it's you who's paranoid, not the QAnon people. You could be I'm against not, government. You could be suspicious of science. That doesn't make you a danger. I would not say it's paranoia. I just stated facts. It's a fact that... Well, you can be as maybe it's a fact that they're against the government, but so what? It's it's a fact that these people distrust the the government and the institutions. Well, so but that but Americans have always distrusted government. That's quite healthy, isn't it? It's a suspicion of actually, authority. We have polls of Americans that measure how much they trust the government, and the trust in government has been declined. But as low as it is now, I don't think it's ever been. So yes, some percentage of Americans have always distrusted the government, but the percentage is much bigger now and they have a way to connect with each other. That's not to say that, you know, they're imminently planning an attack. I did not compare them to ISIS. And in fact, I wrote an article for the academic and security community warning against making such comparisons. But I do think that if we want to live in a society that has laws and institutions that run well and where there is trust which is required to run these things that we have to worry about 35 people 35 million people among us who are against these things and i'm not saying that we should send security people out there and spy on them god forbid or something like that but i'm saying that we should address this as a problem because it is a problem um so um uh, uh, Mia, not Sophia. You're so easy to confuse. Um, uh, Mia, um, uh, talk to me a little bit about the title. The book is called uh, Pastels and Pedophiles uh, Inside the Mind of, of QAnon. Um, uh, why the obsession with pedophilia? Is this the new sort of Christian obsession of the 21st century? What is it about pedophilia that makes people so angry? I mean, there are lots of terrible crimes. I'm not suggesting it's better or worse than any others, but but why the obsession with pedophilia? It definitely, well, I mean, for me, it would be worse because, you know, they're children. And, but I think part of it is... Well, it's no worse than beating women up or killing other people, is it? I, I don't know if they rank them, but I think when people are being sentenced, pedophilia is up there. And part of the reason is that it... Um, it evokes among women this automatic maternal instinct. This idea of protecting children is very, very important. And of course, you know, as, as Sophia um, has also written about this, where it's like the worst thing you can call someone is a pedophile, right? It's like 
Even even Elon Musk is uh, in the pedophilia business. I mean, I'm not suggesting he's a pedophile, but he he suggests others are. That's his worst insult, which is again a kind of childishness, a schoolboy level uh, discussion, isn't it? So if you don't like someone, you call them a pedophile, right? But so the, the word has actually lost any meaning. It's like calling them a fascist or something. It taps into something else though, because QAnon is also very anti-Catholic Church. And so they can bring that in because there have been actual cases of pedophilia, as we know. But the other thing is this, when people are, are, you're trying to recruit, especially women, but when you're trying to recruit women, and I noticed this with ISIS as well, they used to approach um, women with, did you want to help the children? And of course, every woman's going to say, of course, I want to help the orphans in Syria. This Mm. is the way that they were approaching women. Because if you stand by, you are letting pedophilia happen. It is because of you that these kids are being abused. And here's an interesting, we did additional studies because we didn't just stop at the book. One of the ways in which QAnon became, and I see that Mike is saying in the, in the chats, he's absolutely right about grifting and trying to get money. The way in which they managed to get Instagram and get into not just right-wing politics, but also all these left-wing vegans and, and natural birth uh, moms, the QA moms as we call them, was the Save the Children campaign, which they stole from the British charity Save the Children. But what was different about Save the Children was that QAnon's children were all white. And if you look at Save the Children charity, the only white woman I see is Jennifer Garner because she's- right. so, uh, What about the anti-vaxxer element? Um, that That's uh, another- piece of this peculiar jigsaw absolutely and it's this is where the left wing comes in during pandemic the fake documentary plandemic was circulated and that's one of the ways that QAnon was able to pick up so many people who in that survey you mentioned six percent identify as democrats that they're not republicans so that they are appealing to uh, very what we would ordinarily have considered left-wing individuals, the vegans and the natural childbirth and the breastfeeding and those types, with the people who think that Trump is, you know, sent from God. Um, what about finally? Um, the title, as I said, is pastels and pedophiles. Uh, why the pastels? Tell me a little bit about this word. What what its significance? Well, so pastels, the reason that that came up was originally we were thinking to write a book about just the QAnon women. And pastel QAnon was a term that uh, The Atlantic had used, an an article in The Atlantic by Adrienne LaFrance. I think she was quoting Marc-Andre Argentino. And so there is this term called pastel QAnon that it sort of evokes the softer hues and tones. And again, sorry to keep making this comparison because we don't think it's a terrorist group. But Al-Qaeda did the same thing. When Al-Qaeda started recruiting women, they created these websites, you know, with pink and purple and orange colors uh, in order to attract women, thinking that those were the colors that women would be comfortable with. And so this idea is that it's not just um, a small group of people who believe in QAnon, but the moment you get the women, you're going to get the husbands and you're going to get the kids. And that's where it becomes really the focal point. We need to explain why QAnon isn't just bad for, you know, the institutions of democracy. It's the fact that it's being amplified by Russia and China. 
But also oh, and the Russians and the Chinese are involved now as well. So you've thrown in the whole lot. Russians, Chinese, vaxxers, vegans, ISIS, everybody is involved in this. Well, it's an interesting idea. I have to say I'm not convinced myself, but well worth the read. Pastels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon by Mia Bloom and Sofia uh, Moskalenko. I want to thank you both. Um, uh, both brave women reporting on this stuff. I mean, I tend to poo-poo it a bit, but I know that there are some crazy individuals involved, and I think you're you're risking your own safety in doing this and talking about it and writing about it. So I respect you for it. I, as I said, I'm not convinced myself, but it's an important book, uh, one of the first books written, I think, about QAnon. And for anyone who's interested, uh, essential reading, published by Stanford University Press, very credible press. So, Sophia and Mia, thank you so much. Keep well, keep healthy, and keep writing about this threat. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.